the opportunity to come back to Coca-Cola was in the retail side. And as I said, I, I'm always feeling like I need to just push the learning curve to, to kind of stay super energetic and stay, perhaps stay younger and stay, you know, thriving on every day. And so this opportunity was to work in retail, which I, my whole career had been on the food service side at Coca-Cola. And and I thought, what a great opportunity. So um, this was managing all of the retail business, if you can imagine, that is single serve immediate consumption. Welcome to the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. My name is Chris Thompson, your host of the show and the head coach of the Student Works Management Program. This is a show dedicated to young and ambitious entrepreneurs and ultimately the leaders of tomorrow. Each week, we will bring you an inspiring interview or message to help you create the future you know you deserve. Let's get started. Hey, leaders. I am super excited to be bringing you a amazing, amazing leader. Barry Dankert is the vice president of uh, GM and global vice president of the RBI business for the Coca-Cola company. The RBI business is Burger King, Tim Hortons, and Popeyes, and he runs that right across the world. And we follow Barry through his time spent with uh, student works then known as AAA student painters or student painters and his career and the twists and turns and the learning and we really dug into the coca-cola business and the ways that it is such a powerful brand around marketing around really working with their customers to make them profitable i think you'll love a lot of the takeaways the learning barry is incredibly bright incredibly hardworking. Uh, former uh, business student at Lorraine. So really, really, really smart guy, wise, wise, wise beyond his years. And I know you're going to love this podcast. Very, very excited to bring Barry on the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. In this key part of our recruiting season, we have just gone off despite you know what's going on in the world. We've just gone and had our best year ever. We have our most returning operators ever. We have our most referrals ever. And we're looking to uh, find and attract an even more amazing group of young leaders who really want to separate themselves out in these challenging times to to, uh, really expand their leadership in a market for us that, you know, people are more interested in the services that we provide than any other time in the history of our business. So if you're interested, please share our program with people you know. That's really why we're doing this. That's really why we're giving this content and and reaching out to our alumni to provide this is is for you to sort of see, hey, do I know someone who could be involved with us? So they could go to studentworksworks.com. They could go to leaderspodcast.ca slash apply, or you're always welcome to send me an email at chris at leaderspodcast.ca. Have a fantastic day. And I know you're going to love this podcast. Uh, welcome, Barry. Uh, really excited to have you on the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Yeah, fantastic. And it's it's really fun how we got reconnected to the program. I know you were up visiting Jonah's parents, and maybe you can tell the backstory about that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Jonah's parents and I have known each other since we were seven years old. Yeah. They were <laughs> around there. I played hockey in, in house league at seven years old with, uh, with, with his dad and, uh, was in, was in school with his mom. And, uh, so we've been longtime friends and still friends to this day. And, uh, and so when I was, uh, doing AAA student painters in, uh, 1987, summer of 1987, Dave and Kathy were my, my go-to crew. So fun. So they were, <laughs> they were not only great friends, but also, uh, great associates to work with that summer and uh we, we had a wonderful time uh dealing with all the the customer issues you you, you have but yes. also this just uh having a good camaraderie and, and a great summer together no it's it's pretty fun um i know jonah jonah actually managed with us for three summers really successfully one summer as i was mentioning i worked directly with them and i remember he coming to me uh, and going hey Drew, you know, Barry Danker. I'm like, oh, wow, you know, that's fantastic. You know, what a, you know, and, and 
one of the unfortunate things about not having social media like we do now is is that staying connected to our you know alum, alumni is way easier now than it was back in the day you know so it's kind of neat and and um so i know you you worked with with us for a season you actually referred one of our real top operators to our program as well michael morse yeah yeah so mike and i uh, were high school buddies and uh, i was actually looking to sign on for a second year but i had an opportunity to to go work with my father and i just thought it was an interesting uh, you know opportunity later in my life uh, heading off to college to be able to spend a summer with my dad so definitely I sort of changed gears. I didn't sign on for that second year, but I referenced uh, Mike to the program and, yeah. and uh, Mike's just an amazing guy and a very successful guy today and uh, always was. And so he took the Thornhill territory where, where I was and, and Helmet Beeman, uh, as you know, was, yeah. was uh, that's where Helmet lived right there on Royal Orchard. And uh, so the pressure was on to, uh, to make sure Thornhill performed and, <laughs> and, and Mike stood up to it for sure. No, it's and it's fun because I was actually Mike's uh, district manager that next year, and he stayed with the program and worked three years at West as a district manager, and now runs a bunch of business at Scotia McLeod, and and we're, we've remained tight as well. So it's it's a small world, and that's always a great lesson for you know our leaders is just understanding how connected you are likely to be to people. You know, you're just one you know, person, oh, they know you, you know them, right? I'm sure yeah. you found that over your career. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, as a matter of fact, it's been a big driver of uh, my movement in my career is actually the pull, right? The pull of people saying, hey, uh, Barry built a reputation in this particular body of work or this right. particular company. And I think he'd be a good fit for this role that I'm looking at. And so in, in many parts of my career, it was all about the networking. Yes. You know, first proving yourself, right? Yes. And having a base. And then the networking and people are always looking for good people. So yeah. uh, that's kind of uh, what, my, what my journey was. Yeah, no, for sure. So yeah, I know you graduated from Laurier. We've got a bunch of great Laurier alumni. So tell me about your career progress, uh, Barry. So when I graduated from Laurier, I came out and I went into, uh, I, I was in the business program and I went into a, uh, a sales role at Warner Lambert and I right. was working on, um, you know, shoppers, drug marts, guardian drugs, territory sales, that sort of thing. And I, it was a fantastic uh, starting ground to the business world for me and learned a ton A wonderful company really enjoyed it. But I also felt that uh, I wanted some more uh, strategy and more, yes. and a lot of my, my focus at Laurier was in the marketing end of things. And, uh, not so much sort of thinking about being uh, in sales. And so I actually went back and did my MBA at University of Windsor. And okay. I did my MBA focused on marketing strategy. And I came out and uh, started with Kimberly Clark in brand management. So I, right. I, I worked for Kimberly Clark for five years in brand management. I moved from Kimberly Clark to the Coca-Cola company into marketing role there. And uh, 21 years later, I've been with Coca-Cola um, with a, a whole host of different exciting assignments, things like managing, uh, I managed the, the Burger King business throughout all of Asia Pacific while living in Australia. I managed uh, the global 7-Eleven business. I've I now manage the global, what we call RBI. So it's Restaurant Brands International. They're owned by 3G and they own Tim Hortons. Burger King and Popeyes, and I manage the the global RBI business. Wow! So with the Tim Hortons, does that also own Wendy's? No longer. So Wendy's okay. used to own Tim Hortons, and then they spun it off. And then in uh, I believe it was 2012 and maybe 2014. Okay. The uh, Burger King uh, Burger King picked up Tim Hortons. Okay. 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 Great. So so to move backwards, so so your um, you know, you join the, the Coca-Cola company and, you know, one thing that I, I think a lot of our young leaders are interested in is kind of the international aspect of it. You know, you've got an opportunity to move internationally. You know, were you married at that point? Was that after? How did that work around family, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great question. So I was married. Uh, in fact, I got married 
And three months later, I got transferred to the United States with Kimberly Clark. Okay. And uh, we went to Wisconsin and ha- had a wonderful time there. And then, so I was actually on a visa in the U.S. Right. And so I had two options, go back and uh, work at Coke Canada or go international. And this opportunity came along to work in Australia. Coincidentally, my father is an Australian, so um, I have a lot of family over there. And my wife was super supportive of, you know, an adventure. We hadn't started having kids yet. And right. he said, let's, let's go, let's do it. So when I got the role, we went over to Australia. We lived there for two and a half, almost three years. And then uh, we had a company restructure, which brought me back. Right. But um, so the thought process was more about just being young in our career, young in our lives together and thinking about adventure. And, uh, you know, sometimes you can think about that as being kind of hard to move away from your folks and your family in Toronto or wherever you're from. But actually, it's it's just such a great growing experience and you bring things back to the family. And and it was kind of a, a, a fun centerpiece, if you will, of, you know, Christmas time discussions and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah, it was really, really great. Uh, and my wife is just adventurous in general. Right. So she was all for it and, and it, it worked out really well. No, that's great. And then how important do you think it is in, in just kind of going and discovering how much different other places in the world are? you know, how they buy, how they think culturally. Has that been a real impactful in your career as you've, you've gone to different levels? Yeah, that was one of the most beneficial things that I experienced in that role uh, managing Burger King Asia. So my role was to bring together the Burger King franchisee with the uh, Coca-Cola local bottler. Right. And so understanding the local business, because the Coca-Cola system, it's a franchise system. So you have the bottling rights to Taiwan. Right. Or to Japan or to New Zealand. And so working with that local Coca-Cola bottler, understanding their PL, their business, what drives their business, what they're interested in, at the same time understanding what's important to the Burger King franchisee in those countries. And so by having that as a business objective, you you just automatically tune into the microeconomics of day-to-day transactions between those companies and what's happening in those marketplaces. And uh, it really, I thought it was fascinating. We actually had the Asian currency crisis in 1997, where uh, things like the Philippine peso had devalued a threefold and, and just a, a lot of uh, thrown into the fire experiences for a young manager. Right. And so, um, yeah, so getting back to your question, like every country, 10 or so countries from Japan down to New Zealand and everywhere in between and learning about how their government works, how their how their uh, culture works, uh, what makes the consumer tick. Why would something like Burger King be interesting to, you know, consumers in Malaysia where it's yeah. a heavy Muslim uh, country and things like that? So, re- really interesting nuances to bring into your business strategy with consumers and with uh, with the bottom and franchisees. Well, it's it's interesting as well now that you mention it because it it didn't really occur to me, and I guess I'd known, you know. But it's it's you're right. Like Coca Cola is actually you know has relationships with all sorts of bottlers, so they are running their own business, and then you're dealing largely with a franchise network. They are all running their own business, so they're entrepreneurs. They're running a net profit business, but again, net profit doesn't just mean they care about profit. They care about all these things. So I imagine because of your experience as an entrepreneur, that had a really positive impact. You understanding again how to make money, the pros and you know cons about when you don't make money, all those sorts of things. So how did that impact your career? That's a really great question. And it would come up all the time in mm-hmm. those experiences and, and still does to this day where, you know, sometimes as a Coca-Cola executive, you can be looked at as, um, you know, just a corporate guy, right? Yes. So you're the corporate guy putting the pressure on us to do certain programs or what have you. But when you have an experience like uh, student works, you, you're, you're going in there and saying, I ran a business. Yeah. I know what you're going through. I know yeah. about managing employees. I know about, making pay decisions. I know yeah. about dealing with, uh, with, with customer complaints and issues and stress of, of those sorts. And, 
and cash flow and yeah. making payroll and all sorts of things like that. And it, it brings a, a, an absolutely, it brings a lot of credibility uh, to the conversation. Yeah. And then also as well, like, you know, obviously the Coca-Cola company helps these companies make a lot of money, right? Like if you yes. really, you know, and again, you know, I don't know a lot, but it seems yeah. to me like the amount they charge for a Coca-Cola um, in these <laughs> restaurants is a lot. Um, so, so well done, Barry. And so the margin for the operators, you know, in these franchisees, you must be put a smile on their face, right? Like your yeah, company, yeah. I imagine, is one of the highest margin part of their business. That yeah, it absolutely is. Yep. Yeah. It's it's usually the probably the highest margin item on the menu and, right. uh, or maybe second highest um, to French fries, which are very profitable. <laughs> right. But as the Coca-Cola company, we bring research and we bring marketing and we bring programming and we bring consumer insights. So it's more than just buying syrup, right? So it's it's about, it's almost like um, our food service division, and I've worked in both our food service and retail division. Our food service division, it's almost like a restaurant consulting. I, I've learned a tremendous amount about the restaurant business and running a restaurant, right. being in the back kitchen with that owner and understanding what his issues are. What's the bottleneck in an order that goes through the drive-through? Why does someone choose the drive-through versus coming into the store? What are the things that motivate the consumer in that? So we get involved in all of those discussions. And, and you're right, Coca-Cola is very profitable for the restaurant. And, and as you probably know, the re restaurant margins are very tight. Yes. And it's tough. It's a tough business. I had a friend whose father was in the war and he said uh, to his son, don't, don't do two, two things. Don't ever go to war and don't ever open a restaurant. So, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so it's a tough business. Uh, but yeah, but the value chain's great. The value chain is great. So Coca-Cola makes a profit on our business. Uh, the, the franchisee makes a tremendous profit uh, at the restaurant and the consumer loves a nice ice cold Coke with their, with their hamburger. So for sure, it's a great value chain from, you know, producer to consumer. And, and as I say, we, we, we enter long-term agreements where we build programs and we build consumer research and we work on consumer insights to help those restaurants thrive. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. So, so again, for our leaders, it's like, okay, we're helping our, our operators make money. That's actually the number one value of our business. You know, um, you know, what our number one commandment, help our operators make money. And though it's not just about making money because how you make money is again, about strategy, about marketing, bringing insights. And, and so that, and one of the cool things is I can imagine the Coca-Cola company being one of the most knowledgeable organizations in the world because if I'm Burger King, I'm obviously pretty smart. I have thousands of franchisees across the world, but you've got Burger King, McDonald's, you know, Tim Hortons, and across chains of knowledge. And yes. so you can go and share that knowledge. Again, not private confidential knowledge, obviously, but marketing knowledge. And how does that help those companies? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great insight that you just uh, touched on. We probably have an 80 share of the restaurant business in the United wow. States. Uh, don't know what the market share is in Canada, but it's it's significant. significant. And we pride ourselves in having a food service division that really focuses on trying to make independent entrepreneurs, whether it's in a big you know franchise like a Burger King or yeah smaller franchise like a five guys or something uh, even smaller like a mom and pop up and down the street we pride ourselves in having uh the consumer insights thinking about the economic we have an economist that works in our food service division that talks to them about what where he sees you know rental properties going and what's going to happen to their lease rates and uh you know all, all the microeconomic details of their business and so we we can tap into those resources so it's interesting sometimes i have friends that say well if McDonald's is Coke, then why wouldn't Burger King go Pepsi to try to be to try to be different? Well, the the reality is it's it's more about they don't look at it that way necessarily. It's more about which partner can best help me grow my business yeah. and build my business and help me be a successful business person. And and so that's where uh, we, I believe, have a have a competitive advantage at least in the United States in that regard. So and so. Um, Back to the point of your question, it's, it's, right. it's, uh, it's you know, that, that 80 share uh, creates momentum. 
right? Yes. So uh, we, we get a lot of momentum around our knowledge on the industry. And just as you said about network and networking, the restaurant in- industry is very uh, tightly tied. Yes. And uh, so someone leaves, uh, just had a friend who was uh, COO of Arby's, went over to Chipotle. Yeah. Arby's was a, our competitor at the time. He came over to Chipotle, gave me a lot of feedback about what he saw the differences are. Um, so it's, it's really um, a competitive advantage to have that scale. Yeah, 100% and learn and, 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 and share and then take that. And then, and then I can tell as well, Barry, um, you know, you as well as just the entire Coca-Cola company are extraordinarily competitive and always seeking to get better. Always. Okay. How can we stay ahead? Because obviously, you know, your big competitors is, is enormous and with enormously smart people. And so it's a real, you know, challenge staying ahead on a consistent basis, I imagine. It is, uh, you know, we, we do, we have a fantastic uh, competitor in, in the blue guys. Yes. <laughs> the one that shall not be named. <laughs> <laughs> and even the purple guys, but no, uh, no, it's, it's a fantastic company. And I have a lot of friends over there. In fact, my Laurier roommate uh, worked for them. And right. So it's what, which I think is actually great because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously I'm a believer that great competition, you know, elevates the bar across the board. Yeah. And it may, keeps you on your toes. And and someone like myself in my position, the last thing I want to do is lose the competition. And so yeah. my entire, my short-term strategy is, you know, how do I help the franchisee be more profitable and more successful? And, and incidentally, you mentioned about Student Works goal. Every C-suite person at RBI is bonused on franchisee profitability that is the number one item that they're bonused on so my short-term strategy is making sure i'm focused on that my longer-term strategy is how do we insulate the business how do we become so valuable to our partner that they will never even think about right uh, having a different partnership yeah and so for me that's that's kind of my true north or my uh, my focus point on a longer term level right Uh, Yeah. yeah And for, for leaders, like, you know, I want everyone to hear this, that this is sincere. This is authentic. This is, you know, again, you know, like this is not only a good strategy, but it's a great place to live, right? It's a great place to be, wake up every morning. How can I help my people become more profitable? How can I just be so indispensable? They'd never think of leaving me, right? Like it really is a great spot, right? So, and you're so tied together and then I'm sure that there's, just lots of shared time together and shared learning together. And again, it's, it's why it works so well, right? It is. And, and when you have really tough challenges, right? Like the COVID situation yeah. is going to bounce out a lot of restaurateurs. Yes. People are, people are going to have a hard time staying in business. And so when you have a challenging time like this and they come to you and say, how can you help? That's when you really step up and that's when you show your true colors. And that's when you can, make or break your, your, your long-term partnerships. And, and so, yeah, so it's super exciting. I, I, I love the business and I, you know, I think it's a very dynamic business. The customer is super challenging. There's not a day goes by without a pretty handy challenge to, to, to manage through. So, right. But I, I think that's great. I think that's fun. I mean, this is as, as uh, one of my favorite quotes is this is not a dress rehearsal, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's true. You might yeah. as well get up and love what you do, right? Yeah. No, and it's it's true. You know, fortunately, unfortunately, it's just true that that COVID is going to knock out a bunch of people who can't who who can't survive, aren't aren't don't have big enough pockets, aren't wanted by the customer enough, aren't aren't generating enough gross revenue to stay in business. So, the larger, the more successful, the more sought after organizations are going to be you know, able to respond that much better. It's, it's, it's like our business. We've, we're, we're going to have our best year ever. We've just been, it's been remarkable how we've been looked at by the, the, the consumer and by our operators. And again, you, you know, in some, some ways we feel part of us feel bad because we're doing so well in a bad time. But again, it's, it's better than the reverse. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely <laughs> so you know already there's all sorts of things to feel really horrible about right now so no kidding one cool thing is and i know we've sort of chatted before the podcast but you moved away from the coca-cola company 
So I'd love if you could sort of describe that dynamic and some of the things that pushed you or pulled you away, et cetera, and, and share that with our leaders. Yeah, absolutely. I was in a role, vice president of national sales for the food service division. And uh, I was in my fifth year of that role. And I happened to be on the uh, board of directors of the Boy Scouts of Ohio. And there was an associate of mine who was the president of North America for Givadon Flavors, which is the largest supplier to the Coca-Cola company and a very large supplier to all the beverage companies uh, and food companies in, in, in the world. And so he coincidentally went to Laurier, was a business grad from Laurier, and uh, was a captain of Laurier's hockey team and was trying to convince me to leave Coca-Cola and come work for him. Right. And again, this goes back to our networking conversation, right? So we talk, we started talking about Laurier and the business program and hockey and all, yeah. all sorts of personal things and then turned to professional things. And we were on a, we were working on an assignment through the Boy Scouts and, and he just kept pounding me. <laughs> and uh, his, his timing was great because I had, I had hit the fifth year of this very tough job. So this right. job was negotiating deals in the Midwest every single day. And the Midwest is a very blue territory right. in the United States. And so uh, it was tough, really tough job. And, and I felt I wasn't learning anymore. So right. I had hit the fifth year of doing pretty much the same thing every year. And I just didn't, I felt my learning curve really flattening. Right. And he had this very interesting, fascinating business where the, what the flavor houses do is they basically create products. So Givadon invented Snapple. Okay. Givadon invented Bud Light Lime. Givadon uh, created uh, many other many other products. So he started talking to me more and more and more. And I was VP of sales. And this role was a role that was a GM role. So it was sales, finance, uh, innovation. I had a, 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 an entire beverage innovation uh, science team reporting into me. Right. So it was more of a GM role for all of North America, calling on all the beverage manufacturers. And I just thought it was a really exciting time. At that time, around 2005, they, uh, this is where beverage trends were really changing from your sugar-based carbonated soft drink to so oh, many yes. types of beverages. Yes. And frankly, I don't think Coca-Cola was innovating very, very quickly. And, and, right. and here's Givenon doing all these fascinating things with multiple customers. Almost every Diageo-flavored alcohol brand you see is a Givenon product. So Okay. You know, it was just super fascinating. And I thought, you know what? What have I got to lose? This is, right. uh, they actually happened to be headquartered in Cincinnati where I was living at the time. And I said, I don't have to move. Yeah. I can grow in my learning experience. I can work for this guy who clearly is a sponsor. So um, I thought, I, I, I'm going to break the mold and not be sort of, we, we sometimes we have really long term people that get sort of stayed in their role and, and that's okay for some people. It's not okay for me. I just get yes. too I get too anxious to want to continue to push the learning. So anyway, yeah. So I joined I joined Givadon. It was an amazing experience. I had a very big team. I learned the flavor business. I learned the beverage business more broadly. I learned uh, a little bit more on commodities because we're parts per billion in a drink. And I learned about the science of creating a great product. Um, we actually acquired another company. And my role changed from the GM of the beverage business to VP of sales of all the company. And uh, coincidentally, I had a, uh, an ex-manager from Coke call me and say he had a great opportunity, really wanted me to come back. So I had left Jivadon and then I, I actually came back for that opportunity. To right, right. Yeah, I know. And it's, so it's, it's, it's like you said, it's kind of those relationships, those people who you're attracted to, they're attracted to you. And there's, there's that, there's that shared, that shared value, that shared interest. Because one of the things as well is, is that I remember chatting with one of my, you know, good friends and I talked to, he's, he's, he's very senior at CIBC. And I said, well, how many direct reports do you have? And he goes, I think it was five to seven. And, and he's, and I, how often do you talk to them? Well, if they can get me on the phone once a week, that would be a lot. He goes, I got too much to do. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, you know, and he goes, oh, they're awesome. I love them. They're crushing it. You know, so it's, it's, it's like you need people at, at, at a high level who just are going to go crush it, right? Yeah, that's right. So you move to Atlanta and um, 
And so, so why don't you describe the, the, the roles that you played in Atlanta and been playing? Yeah. So the, the, uh, the opportunity to come back to Coca-Cola was in the retail side. And I, you know, as I, as I said, I, I, I'm always feeling like I need to just push the learning curve to, to kind of stay super energetic and stay, perhaps stay younger and stay, you know, th- thriving on every day. And so this opportunity was to work in retail, which I, my, my whole career had been on the food service side at Coca-Cola. And, and I thought, what a great um, opportunity. So um, this was managing all of the retail business, if you can imagine, that is single serve immediate consumption, as right. we say at Coca-Cola. So, so it was the entire vending business for the United States. It was all of the hospitals, colleges, universities. So where there's single serve in the cafeteria and the vending machines and the in the small newsstands and things like that. It was all the mom and pop up and down the street business for right. both restaurants and small shops. And it was national, so it was for the entire United States. So it's one of the most, it is the most profitable uh, segment of the company's business. And so there's a tremendous amount of excitement and attention on it from the bottlers back to the franchise system. So I would work with the franchise bottlers and work with them on what is our, the division's called on-premise. What is our on-premise strategy? Right. Uh, How do we grow outlets? So every year, certain on-premise customers go out of business. You have to refill that pipeline and add to it right? in order to grow. And so that was that, um, you know, the, that immediate job that I uh, had started in Atlanta and really just, um, we had tremendous growth. We looked at the business differently in terms of our philosophy was we can't grow this business if we don't grow net outlets. Right. So those uh, handful, uh, well, not even a handful, maybe 10 to 12% of businesses that go out of business and we lose their business, how are you going to build that back in plus additional Four. outlets to have a net positive outlet? So, okay. So then what did we work on? I worked on routing strategies, technology, ordering strategies. How do we get people, how do we segment our business A through D in order to maximize the profit out of the segmentation of the A customers, B customers, D. How frequently do you call on them? How many salespeople should we have? So it was really uh, an exciting uh, body of work around uh, sales efficiency, sales reach, and then customer portfolio strategy. So which products should we be selling to them? So it was, it was, it was a really all-encompassing role. It was really good. And so how does, how does the Coca-Cola company outperform your competitors in that space? Uh, that's a great question. That is a very uh, grassroots competitive uh, space. And, and it's interesting talking about the franchise bottler system, you know, our competitor has the same system and really that's how Coca-Cola grew. Mm-hmm. And actually, when you think about it, that's how Tim Hortons grew. It became a fabric of the local community. Yeah. Coca-Cola bottler was the guy or gal that sponsored the baseball team, the hockey yeah. team. It was yeah. a fabric of the community. And so people rallied around that local business person. And so there's, there's pockets of communities and states and counties where that's where Coca-Cola started that, right. you know, Coca-Cola built this town, you know, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And I think it's very similar in the Tim Hortons Canada model. Canada, I think yes, what they yes. did is just incredible when you think about them having roughly 4,000 uh, restaurants. Yeah. And so I bring that up because the business was on premise. It's up and down the street, mom and pop. And so there's pockets of the country in the United States where our competitor is incredibly strong because that's how they started. And that's how they built that area. There's parts of the Carolinas, for example, where our competitor is extremely strong. There's parts of the country where we are extremely strong. So that's uh, sort of one base point. The second is uh, strength of certain uh, regional brands. So uh, they have a brand in Mountain Dew that's incredibly strong in uh, the North Midwest, where certain restaurateurs will say, I won't even think about switching because of that brand. Right. So you've got uh, franchise start, you've got brand strength. But then, so that all of that, those things are, uh, perhaps tougher to overcome. So what was important in my role um, 
for the on-premise business was more around strategic routing and having the right segmentation of product for business and thinking through our vending strategy. For example, we did a lot of work around uh, cashless vending. Right. So we didn't have any cashless vending. We had, we uh, often many of our vendors had just coin, like not even bill readers. And so uh, working with the bottler to talk about, and the other thing, I don't want to get too far down a tangent, but the other thing about the vending business is you have, you have to do predictive refills. So you have to predict when that vending machine is yes. out of stock of a certain brand and then decide when to send the truck. Obviously, it's expensive to, to service a vending machine. So we worked on a lot of technology around, can we get those vending machines online to tell us when they're out of stock? Can we get them cashless so that when you're walking around and you don't have coins in your pocket, you can actually buy an ice cold Coke. So those were the the things that we doubled down on. Uh, We partnered with a company called Brain that does a lot of this technology. And I think that was our competitive advantage. Super tough business though. It's really a ground. It's an absolute ground fight every day. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting as well for our leaders. It's like, the reason Coca-Cola or Tim Hortons can sort of throw the flag over their shoulders is because it's true, right? Otherwise, they couldn't. You know, again, like I'm not a Tim Hortons, like I'm not a Tim Hortons fan. That's not the brand I use. And I get it, you know, and again, it's not like I'm against Tim Hortons in any way whatsoever, but I go, yeah. I get it. Yeah, they are. They are Canadiana. They are. They've, they've like you said, Tim Hortons ho- hockey. And, all the different things that they've done to really so because sometimes people might not recognize that's how it happens because it's true because yeah. otherwise you couldn't yeah. go and say you know your brain well it would just be ludicrous right <laughs> you yeah. know, just I love that phrase you. because yeah. it's true right yeah, yeah that's exactly. right. <laughs> and they've earned it right and yes. and it's interesting uh, on that point it's interesting I uh, I was in Spain in Tim Hortons which is one of the larger international uh, they, they have twelve or fifteen restaurants or so. And it's all Tim Horton photos and hockey photos and yeah. Canadiana and China, same thing. So they've made a deliberate strategy to sort of sell Canadiana uh, as their brand, as they've expanded outside of Canada. And uh, I think it's the right thing, but it's interesting to see it takes really well in China. Uh, and maybe that has to do with, you know, Canada and Hong Kong and China have there's a lot of reciprocal uh, relationships of, of people living in Canada. Right. You know, Chinese uh, people immigrating to Canada. Things For like sure. That. So I think it works really well in China. It work, works extremely well in the Philippines. Uh, right. I think Philippines and, and Canada. But it, does, it just doesn't really work that well in Spain. Right. So uh, it's a, it's a, it'll be an interesting thing to uh, see and evaluate. Exactly. Yeah. No, I could. Yeah. Cause it's like, I don't, I don't know. What are these? What's, what's that? Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey leaders. I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. Since we started this podcast, every person you've heard from has been one of the incredible alumni of the student works management program. In large part, that's how I got to meet these amazing people and participate in their development. Starting now and only for the next few weeks, we'll be on campuses across Ontario, Quebec, and the East Coast, interviewing students who think they have what it takes to start their first business and get started down the path of entrepreneurship. If you think you have what it takes or know someone who might be interested, visit leaderspodcast.ca slash apply and start your application process today. Once again, it's leaderspodcast.ca slash apply. Now back to the episode. So, you know, what about, you know, joining Wendy's or, 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 or attacking that brand? What sort of things did you gain and, or learn in that chunk of time? Yeah, that was an opportunity to, uh, I moved from the on-premise business to manage the the Wendy's business again. It's it was more of a GM role where uh, finance, marketing, uh, supply chain, uh, uh, management all came uh, under under my management, and so that was a really good opportunity to uh, focus on my leadership skills, right? And leading a big team and leading people, 
and uh, leading slash, I guess, uh, supporting calling on the C-suite of, of, uh, of Wendy's. Right. So I took on that challenge because it was back more to sort of a GM role uh, of leadership. And I, it, it's a fantastic uh, experience, a fantastic brand. Mm. Great company run by really strong uh, people that are, have been in the restaurant business their whole lives. Right. So I think the biggest challenge there was really transform, helping them transform their brand. So they had been, um, if you can imagine, uh, behind the counter, crew serve, six valve, carbonated soft drink, heavy sugar carbonated soft drink uh, portfolio. But their brand was trying to be something different and the beverage lineup did not match what their brand was trying to be. Okay. So what we worked on with them was uh, a transition to our freestyle uh, machine. Our freestyle machine, uh, for those who don't know that phrase, is is the the machine with over 150 choices of brands. Okay. On, right. Uh, on it's all microdosed. Yes. And, uh, new cartridge. You, way back, you know, we used to use these big five gal tanks, and then we progressed to bag in the box, cardboard boxes that. Uh, the dispenser and now we're into freestyle which is a microdosed cartridge and it allows you to do uh, hundreds of different products and it allows you to uh, market the brand and it allows you to create your own flavor choice that you want and you can bring it down on your phone and there's we're even now coming out with touchless technology so you can pour from the from the freestyle machine without even touching it okay uh, situation Right. So we worked on uh, we worked with Wendy's on um, kind of matching where they were headed with their brand strategy, matching the, the the brand mix, if you will, and and the right piece of equipment for their for their business. And so that was uh, three plus years of um, of work on kind of that transformation. They were rebranding themselves. They redid a lot of their restaurants. Um, yeah which are just fantastic looking, uh, looking restaurants. And, um, and that's a big investment for the franchisee, right? So the, Absolutely. Each, new, each new build is, I, I don't even know what it is. It's somewhere between 800,000, 1.2 million, I imagine. So, you know, yeah. So every restaurant that they build is, is a big long-term investment. And so we want to be part of, uh, of, uh, making that, uh, that local restaurateur, you know, successful and, and make sure that business is successful so we can grow as they grow. And it's really fascinating. I'm glad I asked you that because it's, it seems like every new role, every new, or, 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 and I'm sure there's always just these reinventions that need to happen, right? Like, it's like how, it, you know, again, I've got to redo my store. I've got to change. The market is changing. How do we change? How do we adapt? Oh, wow. All of a sudden we can run ahead of our competitors or then, oh, wow, they've, they've caught a different edge to the market that, 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 that they're jumping ahead on us, right? It's just so, right. so competitive again. And who, what, who it's competitive for is again, chasing customers, you know, what do customers want really is what people yes. are up to, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and one of the things that our consumer insights told us was that there was a, a more heavily uh, female skew in a Wendy's than there was in perhaps another customer. So we wouldn't address the other customer the exact same way we would address the Wendy's, right? Right. It's what's their objective and who do they want and how are they thinking about growing their business? We try to match up to their goals, each individual customer. And so in Wendy's case, they had these great salads. They had more of a female skew. Right. The freestyle machine and the brands that we focused on within the freestyle machine we tried to match up to that to almost do like a, if you think about a, a wine pairing at a, at a white yeah. tablecloth restaurant, we're thinking about, Hey, what's the right pairing with a, with a grilled chicken sandwich? What's the right pairing with the salads and talking to them about uh, choice merchandising and different things like that. What we focus on is uh, beverage incidents. So if 10 people come in, we want 10 people to buy a revenue generating beverage. Yes. And so your beverage incidents, we want your paid beverage incidents to be 100% if we can yep. get it there, right? Yeah. And what you know, what's amazing is the numbers can range from as low as 30 to you know as high as 80. Rarely is it 100, right? So right. Um, 
because someone might have a water already in their car yes. or they're going back to their office and they've already, they're just going to have a coffee or what have you, right? So we're focused on, hey, when you have 10 consumers come in, you want all 10 to buy a revenue generating beverage because it's your most profitable item in your store. Absolutely. So we really focus on beverage incidents. And, and so when you back up from that, you say, okay, well, what are the pairings? What are the matchings to your consumer base? And how do we help you get there? And how do we help you promote it so that you can get your incidence rate as high as you oh, That's cool. And so Wendy's, and then you jump back out of the franchise models and serving franchise, and you go to the 7-Eleven business, obviously a huge, huge piece of business. Right. Yeah. And so what was that experience like? What's been happening at 7-Eleven? Yeah, that was another uh, sort of networking pull experience where I had a manager that called and said, listen, I got this. I need someone to replace this guy that just uh, uh, moved on to another role to manage the global 7-Eleven business. And, and I need somebody that has international experience with our international. Okay. Company. And the list is pretty short. So uh, it was kind of a great opportunity for me because I'm going to say that 7-Eleven has about 18 countries where they operate. And so so back into retail, back into thinking about what we call our OBPPC, which is really kind of pack price architecture of selling the right pack, the right consumer in each of the countries. So that role was working with, obviously, uh, so 7-Eleven is a Japanese company. Not a lot of people know that, but it's a Japanese company. There are 20,000 7-Elevens in Japan. There are 10,000 7-Elevens in Thailand. And the United States 7-Eleven is actually a uh, licensee of the Japanese company. Mm. And it's a private company. And so it's a very different uh, and interesting uh, business model to operate from. Not to go down a rabbit hole on the Japanese economy, but the, um, you know, Japan hasn't seen a price increase in, yes. I don't know, about 20 years or something. Yeah. Because Massive deflation. Yes. Deflation yeah. issue they had, right? So uh, the culture is very challenged around price increase and more for more and drive retail, so drive category growth. And, and so it's an interesting sales challenge to have conversations around, you know, Hey, we want to elevate the whole category. We want to actually drive uh, price and profit in the right way that builds the profit for your for your convenience store. Another nuance was that um, the the franchise model is very different. The franchise model in uh, the restaurant business is often percent of top line. You know, I take an eight percent cut of your sales, and you know, it goes into ad and everything we do support similar to to your business, right? And that's how sort of Coca-Cola's business runs as well. 7-Eleven does a 50-50 profit share at the bottom line. Wow. And so when you think about your strategy with 7-Eleven, you have to think differently about how they receive your, what you're proposing in terms of the pr- price pack architecture. And so, um, you know, Often you come out of a meeting and you're like, why don't they like that program? And then that's it's sort of grounded in things like that, right? Like, right. oh, wait a minute, they're on a 50-50. That means that the operator's not going to make as much in, in the program we just put together. So that was a lot of thinking through the total value chain, not only from the franchisee profit standpoint, but also the consumer you know, price point. Right. So really, really interesting business and challenging customer really fun customer, global customer, spent a lot of time in Japan and Thailand and Asia and uh, working with the franchise bottlers around the world again. So that was, that was a really exciting role. And so with that role, pre-COVID, all these roles, how much travel has been a part of your career, Barry? <laughs> my my wife would probably say too much. Uh, yeah, a lot. You know, I'm I, I don't know two million miler on Delta or something crazy, and wow. and yeah. So it's it's been a significant part. And each each role is different. So in yeah. the Seven Eleven role, I would go over to Asia for two to three weeks, and I would visit I don't know five to eight countries right across that time, and then I'd come home and I'd stay home for a month. Right. So that one was. Uh, spurts of, of travel. Travel. My Wendy's role. Uh, I think I travel about fifty percent of the time, and that was pretty much every week. That was yeah. every week. You know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, back. Yeah. Home, you know, 
visiting uh, someone in the U.S. Uh, my role now is probably, but uh, pre-COVID is was probably close to fifty percent. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of travel. Um, I actually uh, I have two boys who are twenty and eighteen now, and I coached both their hockey teams. Okay. I was in their in in their hockey practices, leading their practices. Uh, so just kind of trying to figure out. You know, it's interesting. I my philosophy is work life balance is kind of all melded together, and yeah. And so I'll take time during a, a business day to do something personal because I know as long as I deliver my objectives and deliver the business, you know, it, it, the FaceTime thing doesn't matter anymore. So I I would you know one year in 2011 I was actually commuting to Ohio, coaching both my son's hockey teams, and traveling and working. And uh, fortunately, I have a an amazing partner in life that uh, that you know we've just we've just really worked uh, together to make that work. Yeah, and it's tough. Yeah, I, I know. You know, it's tough. And and certainly, uh, you know, my travel commitments have been much much smaller than that. But it really is tough. And again, communication with your partner and and with kids and understanding what you're up to at, at those sorts of things and and uh, it is hard. I think a lot of times our young leaders looking from university think, oh, wow, business travel, that would be great. You know, but really business travel is another hotel, another airport, another hotel, another restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it it gets really, really tiring and and exhausting. And then you come home and understandably, your family wants you to be 100% present. And it's really hard because you're totally exhausted. Right. So, (laughs) so it's, it's, it's tough, tough game to play. It is. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. So Barry, in terms of uh, like when you think back on 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 you know spending time at Student Works, you know how do how just is there are there, are there are things that you still rely on the things that you learn there that still impact your life? Yeah, when I was going through business, I was so happy to get into Laurier's business program. I knew I was a bubble candidate, and I right. made it in, and uh, and I was so happy. Uh, there was a there was a guy uh, Rob Scott who I looked up to, and um, he was a year ahead of me in, in uh, high school and he went to Laurier and he told me the great experience he had in the business program his first year. So I, I was really excited to get into the program and I thought, I knew I wanted to be involved in business in some way, but I didn't really know what I wanted. For to sure. Of course. And I got into Laurier. I was super proud of that and working really hard at the business program and what have you. But I realized when I took on student painters that uh, I, I really didn't understand. Right. So I understood the, the textbooks that we were reading and some of the business cases that we would study, Harvard Business Review cases and things like that. And that, that's a great way, I think, to learn business. But there's no better way than do student works painting to, to, to do the business itself, to just jump in the fire and learn. And uh, it was amazing to me how little I knew about business when I started to run a business. Yeah. Fortunately, you know, I had family support and friend support, and I had a great district manager. I forget his, uh, I think his name was his last Dave name. Brown. Dave Brown. Brown. Yeah, Dave Brown. Yeah, that's so, right. Hey, great, a great manager. And as I mentioned before, Helmet was living in Thornhill, and I could, I could pick up the phone and talk to him. I had uh, another counterpart in other uh, section of Thornhill that was running a territory, and he and I would compare notes. Uh, so I'm running off your question a little bit, but but all of that led to so much value of learning how to run a business and and to learn from my mistakes. In fact, I signed on. For, I wanted to sign on for that second year because I wanted to correct the mistakes that I yes. made, really kick it out of the park uh, this time. Some of the things I learned was about the consumer. So I was afraid I wasn't going to get a job, and so yes. I'd I'd underprice. Yeah. And then what I didn't understand was, you know, you really have to understand the dynamics of the the part of town you're in, the, you know, pick up on the person's uh, dynamics of their home and everything else. Uh, Student works, it it provides an incredible service to a consumer that, you know, maybe they have a a son or daughter that's around your age group and they want to support you that way. Maybe there's two BMWs in the driveway and you're thinking, (laughs) so I didn't think about those consumer uh, nuances when I would do my pricing. I worry about, I got to beat the college pro guy. So I would like undercut my, my price a little bit. 
and then I got into, you know, and then I would get into a, oh, oh, oh no, now I, I wanted to pay my painters well, however you define that, right? I don't, I don't know the numbers now, but I wanted, I, what I really wanted was low turnover. Yeah. So I believed that you had to pay your painters well for low turnover. And I realized yeah. that that's not necessarily, that, and that don't mean well, high, I guess. High. I, yes. I wanted yeah. to pay my painters high in order to keep turnover low. But that's not what keeps turnover low. It's a blend of everything you do, how you treat them. Yeah. You want to pay them well, but everybody's got to work hard. And uh, so I learned a lot of uh, things in that summer. And so then, um, you know, just throughout, I've managed a lot of teams, a lot of big teams. And I, I learned a lot about managing people. And I brought that those sets of learnings with me throughout my whole career. Yeah, I think that fundamentally, People get up every day and want to do a great job. Yeah, people aren't perverse. They don't get up and say, "Oh, I'm going to screw <laughs> up today." Right? So, so I think fundamentally, people want to get up and do a great job, and they want to look to the leader, and they want to see that the leader is also all in. Yeah. And so, some of my favorite people, you know, if you think about like famous mentors, if you will, yeah. are moral, morally compassed people that work really hard, like a Bill Gates or yeah. a Warren Buffett or you know, people like that, right? So so I kind of was like, okay, that's that's what I want to emulate and be. And my father ran his own business and, and that's what I saw in his leadership. And while he, was, he wasn't, arguably, he wasn't like the hugest financially successful leader, in my mind, he was one of the most successful people leaders I'd, I'd ever seen. And right. so- I blended all those experiences together and brought that through my leadership experiences in how I manage people. And I think when I, in the Coca-Cola company, when I post for an open position, I get a lot of people that are interested in being on my team because that's how I still uh, operate today. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And ultimately, we can read about books, we can take courses, but ultimately, we have to test it in real life, right? You know, just like, and again, I remember I suffered with profitability issues or just all these things. And again, if I see, oh, that didn't work, whoa, whoa, whoa is me, instead of, no, what a great learning experience. I learned it in 18, 19, 20, 21, and it's been serving me ever since. And, and you know, and you're going to, you're going to make mistakes. And I know you've made many because you can't get to where you are with lots and lots of errors. And, you know, that's not what it's about. You know, it's about, it's about, you know, just learning, learning, learning. So what about habits? What, what key habits would, would someone want to take from you to have the type of success you've had, Barry? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I think that for me, it's, uh, it's kind of just following, you do what you say you're going to do. Yeah. You get up and you and you have a plan, right? Yeah. I, I, I'm a big believer in lists and plans, and yeah. I think I wear my team out with lists and plans. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh God, my staff needs are I think they're. I got to change them up a bit because I think they're getting <laughs> worn out with my lists. But I think you have to you you have to set a plan. Yeah, you have to uh, say what do what you say you're going to do. Yeah, you have to deliver. Your, on your commitments. I had this one job, actually, that was a good learning, uh, an internal painting job, which <laughs> that didn't go so well. And uh, it was like the COO of Digital Equipment Corp or something. And uh, I just did a terrible job. I had to redo his whole house. Right. I lost a lot of money on that, but I did what I said I was going to do. Right. You know, I quoted the job. I did a terrible job. I had to fix it. I brought in another crew. We fixed it. Do get up, get up early, have your plan, do what you say you're going to do and deliver on. And, and, um, I think that, uh, for my boys, I always say, which I, I think is somewhat futile, but I like get off the social media, not, you don't have to get off of social media, but what I mean yeah. by that is don't be, stop comparing your life to others on social media, right? Have your objective for you and drive your own car. It's yeah. your car. Yeah. Nobody else is going to drive your car. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Don't sit in the passenger seat and think that somebody else is going to drive your success and drive yeah. your car. It's yeah. just not going to happen. So uh, I don't suppose that's a habit, but it's it's sort of how I think. It's a viewpoint. Uh, yeah. You know, and I had a great friend who's a CEO of a very successful company. He's built it from, he started it. He's built it in his first couple of years as $5 million, it's now $45 million business. 
And he says, I, 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 it's very simple, but he says, I bet on myself. Yeah. You know, uh, so don't expect others to bring your success for you. You've got to bet on yourself and believe in yourself and, uh, and it's your car drive it. Don't, yeah. don't get distracted by other people's objectives. Yeah. And what I love as well is I, you know, I get, you know, who you are, just a hundred percent accountability, hundred spent, like I'm, I got this, you know, I'm, I'm responsible for this. And, and, you know, again, someone could listen to those bad experiences of having to repaint the job or whatever. It didn't go well. I remember Mr. Givens. I just, my guys did a really bad job on Mr. Givens' home. And so I just fixed it. And I just was, you know, Mr. Givens, he goes, this isn't what you said it was going to be. You're right. So can I fix it? Of course, Chris, you know, and I fixed it. Right. And there's just something to like, there's something to knowing you're the type of person who just fixes it. Right. And I know that's who you are, Barry. You're the type of person who, hey, it's just not okay not to have a have Barry do a good job. Right. Same with. Yeah. And and, and I feel strongly that you're never going to get anywhere in life being the victim. Right. You know, know, it's you know, it was that fault or this fault or that guy's a jerk because he didn't pay me or. Yeah. And what I think that allows you to do is a similar experience I had. I, I misquoted this. Don't ever quote an iron, a black iron fence <laughs> with <laughs> pixels. <laughs> Don't ever underquote that. Oh my gosh. So I underquoted that. I painted the job. I think it was like $660 job. Right. And the guy wouldn't pay me. Right. And he just wouldn't pay me. He had no rationale for it. But when you behave, when you just fix it, it allows you to challenge those people and say, no, you need to do what's right. You need to pay me. Yes. Like, and I'm not going to let this go. And I didn't get paid until a summer and a half after I painted that job. Okay. I went to his house. Every time I got home, I went to his house and said, you owe me $660. <laughs> it was just an integrity thing. I'm well, like, I'm no. not going to let you go no. get away with the, not paying me for a job that I did, even that though I, I did. lost my shirt on it. Absolutely. Like, yeah. It's something no. like that. I'm probably exaggerating, but uh, I think it allows. But there is something to that, right? And that's such a rare thing that happens. And it also speaks to who you are. Like, I'm not going to let, let that just, you know, uh, just stand up for what's right. So final question, Barry, when you think of a leader of tomorrow, what comes to mind? You know, we're talking about the dynamics of some of these roles that I've had. And I think that that's it. It's um, knowing it's like circumstantial leadership, knowing what circumstance to have, which type of leadership style. So sometimes you may need to be the supportive leader or the, you know, the, uh, I don't know, uh, comforting leader or the, sometimes you need to be an authoritarian leader. Right. Sometimes you need to be, I think that things have really changed to where all situations are now very dynamic. So I think to be a really successful leader, you need to uh, think about it as situational leadership, right? So in this situation, I'm going to tell my team what they need to go do. And I'm going to hand them the list and they're going to go do it. In this situation, I'm going to delegate and say, go figure it out. Right. I think so situational leadership, I I would say is going to be really critical. Moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's, I think that's really powerful. I think that's really powerful. And our, our meeting today has been really powerful. I just, I loved our conversation very, uh, you know, blessings to all the things that you're doing right now and all the things that are going on for you to spend this time with us. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. And congratulations on all the success you've had and your business has had and your, and your franchise leaders have had. I mean, it's just incredible to see what's happened. And obviously I watched from afar, even though I did one summer, I watched from afar. I'm, I always wanted you guys to, to kick the yellow guy's butt. And you, <laughs> you, lit- you literally did that literally did. And, literally and, did. And, and built an incredible business. It's a fantastic yeah. story. And, and, uh, I often think about it uh, here in in the U.S. now when I'm driving around and I see I see homes that that need a paint job. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't come I mean, out. You should have it here too in Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> but, uh, well, no, uh, congratulations to you and and your team and everything you've accomplished on that. It's, it's it's amazing, and I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much, Barry. Okay, take care. Have a wonderful right. day. Thanks. Bye. Hey leaders, I hope you enjoyed this episode. By now, 
you are aware that we work with ambitious students every single year to not only help them run their first successful business, but to further their development as a leader and give them an unfair advantage in the future over their counterparts. It's why starting now and only for the next few weeks, we'll be on campuses across Ontario, Quebec, and the East Coast interviewing students who think they have what it takes to start their first business and get started down the path of entrepreneurship. If you think you have what it takes or know someone who might be interested, visit leaderspodcast.ca slash apply and start your application process today. Once again, it's leaderspodcast.ca slash apply. And I can't wait to see you on the other side.